It's, as Jono said, a good day to have a good day, and it's Good Friday. Um, and I want to just get straight into the message today, because we're going to, over the Christmas... Oh, sorry, Christmas. Goodness gracious me. Good, fr- good morning. Good Friday, Easter Sunday. I want to answer two questions that um, are kind of important questions. They're, in fact, central to our faith. If we do not know... The answers to these two questions, the reality is we have nothing because essentially the, the first question today I want to, want to answer is why did Jesus have to die? Why did he have to? And uh, that's an important question. On Sunday we'll be looking at the question of why did Jesus need to rise? And uh, there are two questions that I believe are central to our faith and uh, so Let's get into that. I want to, you can pick us up in the scriptures at Matthew 27 this morning. We're just going to let, read a very small portion of um, what happened on the day Jesus was uh, crucified. And when it talks about the sixth hour or the ninth hour, the day for, for, that, for the calendar at that time in the Jewish calendar starts at 6 a.m. So the sixth hour was midday for us. Okay, so uh, some of your scriptures will reflect that. Um, But when I read now from verse 45, it says, Now from the sixth hour, midday, until the ninth hour, uh, three in the afternoon, there was darkness all over the land. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of those who stood there when they heard that said, This man is calling for Elijah. And immediately one of them ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and offered it to him to drink. The rest said, leave him alone and let's see if Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Then behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom And the earth quaked and the rocks were split and the graves were opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised and coming out of the graves after his resurrection. They went into the holy city and appeared to many. So when the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and the things that had happened, they feared greatly saying, truly, this was the son of God. And many women who followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him, were there looking on from afar. And among whom were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Hosea, and and the mother of Zebedee's sons. All right. That's what happened between midday and and three o'clock until the time Jesus died shortly after. Which is why... Um, they were surprised, or at least um, the religious leaders were surprised when they realised that Jesus was dead, um, certainly well before 6pm. So between 3pm and 6pm, Jesus had died, but that would have not been, for all intents and purposes, a very long time on the cross. So we need to understand that's why they were surprised. He was not only um, dead so quickly, but they had to get him off the cross and into a tomb before, and be home again before 6pm. So it was quite 
um, significant that that time was there and it's mentioned for us. So today I thought I would start off because I like controversy. No, I don't. I hate it. But I think it's fun when I'm creating it. And that's like you. You guys like that too because you do it to me all the time. Um, I thought I want to just begin with this little, little controversy which is irrelevant in the big picture of things. But that part of the narrative that we have just read in Matthew 27 is the conclusion of the day before the Sabbath because they had to get Jesus' body off the cross for the Sabbath. Now, it was a high Sabbath. Um, we read that. There were seven high Sabbaths in the Jewish calendar, or there are seven high Sabbaths. And the first one, um, and these, sorry, these, these Sabbaths are quite distinct from regular Sabbaths. So it's these high Sabbaths, there's seven of them, the first one fell at Passover. This was a high Sabbath, the very first of the seven. And we know that because John records that for us. And if you look to John 19, he says, uh, talking about um, the body coming off the cross, it says, therefore, because it was preparation day, <clears throat> the day before the Sabbath, that the body should not remain on the cross on the Sabbath. And in parentheses, he says, for the Sabbath was a high day. He tells us that, that it was a high Sabbath that they were about to come into. And the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. Okay, the high Sabbath. Now I'm going to shortcut a whole heap of stuff and you can do your own, own investigation into this stuff. But it's likely the high Sabbath was probably on a Thursday. The regular Sabbath on a Saturday. It's likely then that Jesus was probably crucified not on a Friday, so it's not Good Friday at all. It's actually just an ordinary Friday. Um, but probably Wednesday. Now, you can argue about that with me later, um, but that's probably the way that it worked because John distinctly differentiates between the high Sabbath and the regular Sabbath. The good news is that Jesus did rise on Sunday morning because it was the first day of the week. Now, you can argue and we can worry about it, but in the end of the picture, it doesn't matter, honestly, uh, apart from a couple of prophecies that might, might uh, make a little bit more sense. But apart from that, Jesus died on the day before the Sabbath, the high Sabbath. And um, so Sunday is the day of resurrection um, and Jesus lived out his life in Nazareth and, and the surrounding areas and he taught and he did some amazing amazing miracles. The fact that Jesus lived is not questioned. It's not questioned at all. No one disputes that. And not many uh, dispute the way that he died either. In fact, uh, most of the historians record it exactly like the scriptures record it, that uh, Jesus died on a cross and their reason for that was because he was being um, it was a heresy on, on his part because he called himself God. It seems, though, incredulous that someone, that God in particular, would expect someone to die. A God of love, a God who, who portrays love everywhere, why would he have to have his son die for us? Or die, full stop. Why did Jesus have to die? And if, that's, if he did have to die, what did it achieve anyway? 
And they're some of the questions that most people from who are not being brought up in a Christian faith will have. You know, what's the difference? So what if Jesus died? It doesn't make any difference to me at all. So the answer to that question, what, why did it, Jesus have to die, can be answered in two different ways. It can be answered from a, a practical perspective where we understand that the practical side of it and a theological side of it. The practical sense is really quite simple. The practical sense is really that the Jewish priests were looking for a reason to get rid of him. They didn't like him. They didn't regard him as anything. This leader of this movement that Jesus was part of and leading challenged the religious status quo that they were part of, that they were being challenged and he posed a threat to their power. So they just couldn't take action for themselves. They had lots of discussions through Jesus' ministry. But ultimately, if they wanted Jesus to die, Pilate was the only one that could deem that. And so they needed to provide Pilate with a legal reason to kill Jesus. So they met and they brought in witnesses. And they, these witnesses were paid witnesses who testified uh, before, against Jesus before the Sanhedrin. That was the Jewish side of it. And although the Gospel of Mark says many of them gave false testimony, the, the incredulous thing is that Jesus said nothing. He was silent before them. The only question that Jesus um, answered in all of that was the question, are you the king of the Jews? And that's the only one he answered. And he says, if you say so. Then he comes to Pilate. Because now they had an accusation against him. And so they brought him to Pilate. Pilate, um, you know, Pilate's role, he couldn't care less about the religious side of it because, you know, what people believed was their own doing. So he wasn't so worried. It was a secondary thing. So when he was asked, are you, or he asked Jesus, are you the Messiah? And um, <clears throat> he, he also, or he said, are you the king of the Jews? He said, yes, if you say so. And Pilate, even after that, wasn't convinced that Jesus was guilty of anything worthy of death. However, the Roman governor's uh, responsibility was to keep the peace. It was to prevent unrest and rebellion in the society. So what he did, he, even someone claiming to be the Messiah wasn't the problem, but the unrest that it was causing because the Jewish people had caused a lot of people to be stirred up. And they'd riled them up and they called for Jesus' crucifixion. So to keep the peace, Pilate says, I'm washing my hands of that. I'm going to wash my hands of it. And I'm going to just stay out of it and it's not my problem. And he relented and handed Jesus over to be crucified. That's why practically Jesus needed to die or he was put to death. And most of us understand that. Most of us understand the practical reason. It's quite simple. It's quite straightforward. Wrong, maybe, but we understand it. But the, the theological question, the deeper question is, why did he have to die from a theological perspective? And again, uh, I, I like doing this sometimes just to get a different perspective, but sometimes it depends on the motive of for asking the question. If, if someone who was wanting to question the authority of God 
was asking that question, they would put the emphasis on the word die. Why did Jesus have to die? And that's a different question to the question, why did Jesus have to die? Two totally different questions, but the same words. So again, it comes to the motive. What question are we actually asking here? If we're asking, why did Jesus have to die? That puts a whole slant on it to say that we're questioning God in this process. God was the one who did this. He allowed this to happen. So if we're questioning why God allowed Jesus to die, we are taking an assumption then that we know better than God, that God got it wrong. That's a very dangerous place to be. And if God got it wrong, then he can't be God. That's the problem. If he, because God doesn't get anything wrong, he's perfect in all of his ways. Everything about him is right. So if, if there was a different way or a better way that Jesus could be punished for this, or mankind could be punished for this, why did Jesus have to die? And we called into question, there's a problem. We place ourselves above God if we take on that assumption, by the way. If we think that we know better than God. And so we need to recognise that God did not get it wrong. He always does what is right. He always does what is best. And he did what he did because it was the only thing that could be done. He had to die. Jesus had to die. So, but if we turn it around and put the question as to why did Jesus have to die, that's a question that goes to the heart of the Christian faith and message. And that's the key to what I want to share with you today. I needed to just clarify all that. Before we can even begin to answer those questions or that question, we need to understand that God's ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. They're higher than ours. That's what Isaiah 55 says. Those words can precisely. His ways and his thoughts are better and higher than ours. So there are going to be things that God does that we cannot, for the life of us, understand why. But it doesn't mean they're wrong. It just means that we don't know all the, all the infilled stuff. We haven't got all the information. So, and as well as that, in Deuteronomy 32, it says, He, being God is the rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are justice. That's an important word for us. A God of truth and without injustice, righteous and upright is he. If God is a God of justice and there's no unrighteousness in him, then we have to recognise that what he did was absolutely just. Absolutely right. Absolutely the, the only thing that could happen. And if those two pa Bible passages are accurate and true, and I believe that they are, I don't have any question in my mind that they're true statements, we need to begin by answering the question as to why he had to die. Understanding that the plan for God all along was the salvation of mankind. That's why, or the beginning of the answering of this question, we have to understand that God knew what was right and what is best, and he still does. There is a perfect and there is a particular reason that Jesus had to go through the pain and the suffering that he went through on the death of the cross. And it was a painful death. Have no question, don't question that at all. It was a painful death. So we have a problem at that point, and the problem actually starts way back 
in the Garden of Eden. And we're told in Genesis that God created the earth and mankind and everything in, in this planet and, the, and our universe, and he made it perfectly, it says. Everything was done right. At everything at the completion of day one through to day five, everything was good. On day six, it was very good. The completion of what God had done. And he gave them, mankind, everything that they needed and warned them that disobedience to what he called them to do would end up bringing their death. That was the, that was the consequence of disobedience. And the one thing that they had to do was, was to not eat from the tree in the centre of the garden called the tree of knowledge of good and evil. They could eat from anything else but not that tree. If they did, that would be disobedience to God and the punishment was death. If, in God said, if the day that you eat that, you will die. So that was, that was what they were doing. I don't know how long, I don't think very long, but they were living in the garden quite happily until they decided to eat the fruit from that tree. So when Adam and Eve disobeyed God's command, he, was a he is a just God, right? Justice has to prevail. So justice needed to be done, and he had already said the consequence for doing this was death. So he had to punish them. He had to do something, and a judge, because a judge who pardons a lawbreaker and lets them off isn't a just God, a just judge at all, or a righteous judge. So, if God, being a righteous, just, and loving God, were to overlook what Adam and Eve had just done, it would make God unjust, and therefore no longer holy. And He had to punish their sinfulness because He had already determined the consequence of that was death. And Paul reminds us in the New Testament, a memory verse that most of you will know, Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. It goes on about the gift of God being eternal life through Jesus Christ. But the wages of sin is death. But sin's not just the big things because that's what we often think. We go through looking at, okay, well, I'm not being that sinful because I haven't done all the things like murder and blasphemy and, and all of those sorts of things. But that's not the only definition for sin. Sin goes much deeper than that. It's, it's much more like the things that you and I are guilty of, things like a love of money, a hatred of, of our enemies, a, a, an anger that's unrighteous, deceit, a lying of the tongue, we tell lies, uh, pride. I think most of us have struggled with these things from time to time. Because, and they're sinful things. And that because of that, everyone has sinned. That's what Paul says in Romans 6. All have sinned. No one is perfect. All have sinned. All have fallen short of the glory of God. That means that all of us have broken the covenant that God put forth in, in Genesis that the punishment of sin or disobedience to God was death. We all are guilty of that, and the reward for that, the wages, is what Paul says, is death. So we've got a problem. You and I are heading to a Christless eternity unless something happens. We have no means of getting to, to a kingdom of heaven 
under the, the law of a righteous God who says the punishment for that is, is death. That leaves us all in a very bad place. No one is good enough, nor do we deserve to be in the kingdom of heaven with Jesus Christ. And that's a bad problem. None of us deserve that. So, the solution, what did God do? Well, good news for us is that even right back in Genesis, the book of beginnings, God banished Adam and Eve. He punished them in the sense that he, the separation, there was two deaths that took place in, in Genesis. One is the, the death or the death of the relationship between God and man. At that moment, God banished them out of his presence, out of the garden, and put flaming cherubim at the gate so that they couldn't get back in to eat from the tree of life. And so they were banished and spiritually they were in a dead, dead place. But eventually their bodies, because they couldn't access the tree of life anymore, began to, to perish and they died physically. That was a consequence of sin. And we know that because that's what we're told in scripture. But good news in Genesis, it also tells us that he has a plan for us. He has a, a redemption plan for us. Man is on a death path, but he says, I, and he says, says in Genesis 3, I will put enmity between you and the woman, that's talking to Satan, and between your seed and her seed, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his head. That is, is a reference to the coming Messiah, that Jesus Christ, there would come a person, a man, who would be the seed of a woman, who would come onto this planet and he would stomp on the head of the serpent, of Satan. That's what he says. It was reference to the coming Jesus Christ at that moment, Genesis 3.15. But until then, the right time was to happen, there was things that had to take place. The requirement for redemption at that point or for the forgiveness of sin was the shedding of blood. And so they were required in the Old Testament to bring a pure lamb or goat as a sin offering and present it to the priest. The, the lamb or goat was slaughtered. The blood was put upon the corners of the altar. The rest of the, the, the carcass was taken off and eventually disposed of. But the, the sacrifice of this pure lamb or goat, without blemish, it says, it had to be the first and had to be without blemish, was sacrificed and the shedding of blood was sufficient for the forgiveness of sin. Now we can reference all of that back another place, but not today. So we need to recognise that this innocent lamb who had done nothing wrong would be sacrificed show, and they, the, they would bring that lamb and it would show their repentance from their sin and it would show their faith. But we and God knew, well God knew that there, an animal sacrifice was never going to be sufficient for the human problem. It, it would be like, you know, it's a, it's a secondary measure, it's a fill-in measure until the right time and he'd already promised from the seed of a woman that there would come someone who would fulfill the promise properly. But an animal sacrifice to pay for a human problem was never going to get, get us through. And God knew that. So at the right time, God himself, 
Again, if you want to reference this from an Old Testament, Isaac is the, is the reference because God himself provided the one and only sacrifice, the one pure sacrifice, and it was Jesus Christ who could pay for or atone for the sins of his people. So that's what Jesus did. Uh, God did. At the right time, he sent Jesus. We know that Jesus is God because what John tells us that, it says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him, nothing was made that has been made. Who is that talking about? Well, go down the page a little bit further to verse 14. It says, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. The glory as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. The Word was Jesus Christ. The Word became flesh in Jesus Christ. God sent his Son, Jesus Christ, for the atonement of our sin, the perfect requirement. A man who was born of a woman but the seed, the uh, God who implanted that seed into Mary, became Jesus became born as a human being onto this planet, giving up his righteous place or his rights of heaven and coming to earth as the perfect lamb. Now Jesus had to live a life that was exemplary and perfect in all ways, without sin, because if it was, a, if, remember, the sacrifice had to be sinless; it had to be pure. It had to be right, without blemish, no broken bones, no scuffs off skin, nothing like that from a pure lamb's perspective. And Jesus enters into the world as this lamb, making the old system of having to bring an animal sacrifice to the priest for uh, sacrificial purposes obsolete. We have a new covenant, we're told. The old has been made obsolete by the new. And if the old was perfect, there would have been no need for a new covenant. We're told that in scripture as well. So we know that there are going to be times when we are going to find ourselves having to answer some of these questions. It, all of these things would be okay, but we need to be recognising that Jesus was a, as much human as you and I and it was in and through the person of Jesus Christ. All this would be in vain unless Jesus was really who he said he was. If Jesus was not the pure lamb, if he was with error, if these people, these witnesses who came and testified before Pilate and before the Jewish leaders who falsely accused Jesus of all the things, if they were right, Jesus was no more different than you and I. And we need to understand that that's what they were trying to do, was to show that he wasn't worthy of being the son of God. If he couldn't be this, the lamb sacrifice either if he wasn't. And he would be not um, fulfilling any of the prophecies that were given throughout the, the years before. And his death would be in vain. It would just be like any one of us who will eventually die. So we need to establish then, 
is Jesus really who he claimed to be? Is Jesus the Messiah? Is he the, the lamb sacrifice that was, uh, that was sacrificed for you and I? And that comes down to the proof of the Messiah. How do we prove that? There's a, there's a number of ways we can show it. But I think one of the, the most interesting ways um, that, that I have read and looked at a number of times is, is recognising the, the Jesus' fulfilment of all the prophecies. There's about 700 or so, 600 and something prophecies concerning the coming Messiah. Not specifically mentioning Jesus, but it says the Messiah would be. And it goes through from the, his birth, his life, his death, and his subsequent resurrection. About 700 prophecies that were given about the Messiah and, and Jesus fulfilled every single one of them. Every single one of them. Now, just to give you a little bit of an idea, um, let me read from Scripture for you first. Isaiah 5 Oh, sorry, Isaiah 53, which most of you have read, he says, but he was wounded for our transgressions. This is one of the prophecies. This is years, 700 years or so before Jesus came. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him. And by his stripes, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him, Jesus, the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He didn't say a word. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before his shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment. And who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people he was stricken. And they made his grave with the wicked. But with the rich at his death, sorry, not with the wicked, but with the rich at his death. But he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit <clears throat> in his mouth. That one prophecy, that's one passage of scripture from Isaiah 53, spoken about the Messiah about 700 years before Jesus enters onto the scene. And I guarantee that every, anyone who knows anything about the life or the death of Jesus Christ would recognise Jesus in that. Every single one of us. That one prophecy, Jesus, the person, filled every part perfectly. In fact, there was a study done uh, on a university study done about the probability of, of Jesus fulfilling just eight prophecies. If, if there was a person, if eight prophecies were fulfilled, what's the probability of that? They concluded that the prospect that anyone who could fulfill eight prophecies, and remember there was a lot more than eight, was in the vicinity of one to 10 to the 17th power. That means 10 with 17 zeros after it. That's a big number. I don't know what the number is, but it's a big number. The equivalent of that would be to give you, a, 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 for those who are a bit more visual and not mathematical, and that's most of us, um, if you took a dollar coin and you put a black knicker or coloured in one side of it black with a nico pen and you mixed it in with 10 to the 17th power 
of other dollar coins. So you've got one in 10 to the 17th. That number of coins would fill and cover Victoria to a depth of 1.2 metres. That's one coin in a depth of 1.2 metres across Victoria. And then they, they decided that wasn't just enough of the probability. It, the probability of Jesus or someone fulfilling all eight would be to then go and ask a blind man to walk as much as he wants over anywhere he wants and pick out the one coin that had the black mark on it and know and that he was absolutely right and pick it out and show it to be true. That's the probability that one person could fulfill eight prophecies. Jesus fulfilled about 700. There is no doubt in my mind of the accuracy of Jesus being the Messiah. He fulfilled all the prophecies that, were that Scripture had given us and he will fulfill those that are still to come. No question at all. Jesus was the Messiah. And the Messiah's purpose was to come, his pro, his, the, the reason he had to come was to be the lamb sacrifice to pay for the sin of the world. He wasn't guilty, but he was the redemption for you and I. Just as the Old Testament presented a pure lamb, Jesus became our pure lamb. That's what we read about the prophecy was going to be in, in Isaiah 53. He took the punishment of death, which was ours to take, by the way, because of our disobedience, and he made that payment on our behalf. He paid the price that we deserve to pay. Not only were there these hundreds of prophecies fulfilled in his life and death and, and birth and all of those things and the resurrection, but Jesus himself even predicted what was going to happen to him with his disciples while he was in their presence. He walked this planet. He says in Mark 8, just one of them, there's, there's a few times he does this, but he, being Jesus, began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and, he re and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. Jesus knew who he was. He knew exactly who he was. He knew he was the Son of God. He knew his purpose for coming was to be the pure lamb sacrifice. Uh, three, at least three different occasions, he told his disciples this same thing, that Jesus, the Messiah, was going, to was going to be called before the Roman government and he was going to be put to death. But on the third day, he would rise again. But they didn't get it until after he rose again. In fact, there's one point where Peter actually tried to, to um, talk him out of it. He said, don't talk like that, Jesus. Jesus knew exactly who he was. And he spoke very plainly about what was going to happen. And even more than that, he alluded to it. Apart from telling them straight that this was going to happen, he alluded to it on many occasions. One was when Mary anointed him with costly perfume. What did Jesus say about that after um, someone, Judas, who I was going to say rename nameless, but it was Judas, um, said, you should be giving the money, you should sell the perfume and give the money to the poor. What does Jesus say? He says, leave her alone because she's kept this for the day of my burial. He knew it was coming. 
He knew exactly what was about to take place. And his disciples didn't understand that though, that Jesus was with them at that time, but they didn't know it. But afterwards, afterwards, the scriptures tell us that they remembered what he had said. And then it says they believed the word of God. It wasn't until after Jesus rose from the dead that the disciples went, bing, aha. That's exactly what he said he would do. And they believed. Jesus not only had to die, but he was the only one that could die. There was no one else who met the requirements. There was no one else who was the perfect lamb, unblemished sacrifice that could have done anything like what Jesus did. And if he didn't, had not died as the perfect sacrifice in our place, we would not be here today. I promise you that. We celebrate the day that Jesus died. But it's not the purpose of him coming. It's not the only purpose of him coming. And that's why it's not that important which day it happened on because the, the most important factor in all of this is that he did not remain dead. He didn't remain dead. If Jesus had, he would be no different to anyone else of us. No other God, pretense God that has ever been before, he would be no different. If God had not sent Jesus and Jesus had not been risen from the dead, then we would be we would be worshiping a dead god like other religions do as well he had to die and he had to pay the price because you and i did not have any means of getting out of this planet or heading away from a Christless eternity and so today is really a day of celebration a day is a day it's a good day it's a great day for you and i that the payment of your sin and my sin has been made once and for all. A day when we remember with grateful hearts, and it should be with grateful hearts, that Jesus paid this price so that you and I did not have to pay it ourselves because we couldn't. We couldn't. We weren't deserving of that. We, we were with blemish. We were not without sin. What Jesus did on that day was to provide you and I with a get out of hell free card. That's essentially what he's done. He's given us this free pass, if you like, into the kingdom of heaven, but it's not just, it's available to all, but the sad part is so many people don't want it. Why is that? Why is a free gift of eternal life in the kingdom of heaven rejected by so many? That seems a little weird to me. Everyone has access to this free card, but the only way to get it is to accept what Jesus did and allow him to pay the price for us. If we don't, if we reject that offer, the scriptures tell us that we will have to pay the price of our own for our own sin. We can either accept what Jesus did for us or we pay it for ourselves. It's up to us. I've used this other illustration regularly, but when I, or if I gave you a gift, it doesn't become your gift until you receive it. If you, 
reject that gift, it's, it never becomes yours. And that's what happens when, G- when we offer, or Jesus has offered himself, he's offered himself to every single one. All have sinned, all have fallen short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of getting into heaven, the way into the kingdom of heaven is by accepting and believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, through Jesus Christ our Lord, it says. We all have the opportunity to do that. While we all have access to this gift, it will not become ours until we actually accept it. And the good news of that is that as many as have received that, many as many who have accepted this free gift, to them God gave the right to become his children. Isn't that amazing? You and I are his children when we accept him when we believe what he has done and we, re- we accept the payment that Jesus has made on our behalf. You and I are brothers and sisters. You and I are family. You and I are real family. Perhaps not worldly blood family in that sense, although if you want to go back to Adam and Eve, we are. But if you, in another sense... We are absolutely brothers and sisters because God is our Father and we have all entered into this fellowship when we accept Jesus Christ as our Lord and Saviour. We have been adopted into his family as brothers and sisters. So, as your brother, we'll probably fight. And we'll probably argue but above all, we need to love. And we need to respect one another. And we need to accept that we are different. And we need to recognise that God has called us for a purpose and a plan. We need to recognise that he is the one who is over all, in all, and through all things. And as our heavenly father, he is the one that will direct us. He is the one that we keep our eyes fixed upon. He is the one that we need to listen to. And while you and I might disagree on some things, the ultimate thing is that we don't disagree on who God is and who Jesus is and who we are in Christ. You are a king or a queen. You are his people. You are his children. We are his children. We are blessed We have been redeemed by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. We've been set free from the payment of sin. We have been set on a path of righteousness. The scriptures tell us that the the, the path that many travel in our world is wide and many people find it, but that road is ending in disaster. It's heading for a crisis eternity of hell. But... For those who receive him, for those who accept Jesus Christ and what he did for us on the cross, we, we are put on a different path. We find a different path, a narrow path. It's not always easy to find and it's not always easy to travel because it will go contrary to the wide path. And there are going to be times when it's going to feel like you're being steamrolled. Try pushing through a crowd of people going the wrong way. Emotionally, it's going to be hard. Physically, it's going to be hard. Spiritually, it's going to be hard. But 
It's the right path. Because Jesus says, narrow is the path that leads to heaven. Few find it, but those who pursue it and, and stay on it to the end will be saved. You will get to your destination. We will find that. So the, the answer for today is why did Jesus have to die? So that you and I could be in heaven. So that you and I had the opportunity of being in heaven. There was no other one who has lived or will ever live who was worthy of that death. A pure lamb sacrifice in the form of a human being. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. And that word manifested itself through Jesus Christ. We have the living word of God who walked this planet, who understands our problems, who understands the temptations that are going to come. And by the way, the answer to temptations is not to give in to them. That's not how you get away from a temptation. A temptation that comes upon us is allowed to come upon us because God likes or wants to make sure that we are focused on the right things. He will get us through those things. So I want to challenge you today. It's, it's Friday. It's a day when we remember the death of Jesus Christ, when we recognise the, the, the fulfilment of prophecy. By the way, Sunday's coming, and so the fulfilment of more prophecies happens even over these next couple of days. While today we could mourn, it's a good day. It is a wonderful day. It is the beginning of life for you and I, where we need to recognise the beginning of life for us comes through death of Jesus Christ. So let's go forth with confidence. Jesus had to die. There was no other way around it. And we need to accept that. The next question that we'll answer on Sunday morning is why did he have to rise? Why was it so important? Apart from the fact that he, he's alive, why did he have to or need to? Let me pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for your kingdom. I thank you for the opportunity of ministry. I thank you for your faithfulness. I thank you for sending your son, Jesus Christ. I thank you that for the accuracy of your word. I thank you that despite what our world endeavours to do, to disprove, to throw out, to cast shadows upon your word, that your word is truth. And the truth is the truth, whoever believes it, whether you believe it or not. And Father, we want to be clear on that. We want to be discerning. We want to be faithful. We want to go forth and have the confidence to know that what we, what we stand on, Lord, is true and firm. So Lord, thank you for this word. Thank you for, for your desire to see us in the kingdom of heaven. Lord, we didn't deserve that. We don't deserve anything. We have sinned. We've all fallen short of your glory. 
We've all messed up. No one is righteous, not one. We've all done things, Father, that have caused us to be separated from you. But Lord, right from the beginning, you have already put in place a way of redemption because of your love of mankind. God, your word tells us that you love this world so much that you sent Jesus Christ as your only begotten son, your firstborn, the pure lamb sacrifice that whoever believes in him would not go the way of the world and perish but receive life because of the pardon of sin, life eternal in the kingdom of heaven. May your name be honoured. May we bring glory, honour and praise to you, Heavenly Father. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.